everyone. I'm joined here by Mernaz Shusterian from the Bionics Institute. Hi, Mernaz. Hello, Hazel. Good to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So um, you work at the Bionics Institute, and the, and the reason we asked you to come on to the Tinnitus Talk podcast is because the Institute is working on developing uh, developing an objective measure of tinnitus. So we obviously want to hear all about that. But before we start on that, could you just um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, Sure. So, uh, yes, I'm a researcher at the Bionics Institute here in Melbourne. Uh, I've been working at the Bionics Institute for about uh, five years, but doing research for a lot longer. And uh, my background is biomedical engineering, um, and I have an interest in um, looking at uh, different ways of recording brain activity and extracting information from the recorded signals. Right. How did you get interested in that specifically? Uh, well, uh, yes, I my sort of great research interest is... Uh, how we can use technology to non-invasively record brain activity and extract information related to uh, how the brain works or uh, different um, uh, neurological conditions or the effect of uh, drugs on the brain. Uh, So before the Bionics Institute, I was uh, involved with a startup company where we were looking at using uh, another recording technique called EEG that records brain electrical activity and uh, developing a device that could help uh, an anaesthetist an during surgery to give them information about how deeply anaesthetized a patient is. And it, the device was uh, using just a sensor that you could place on the forehead and record um, information. And I just think it's quite amazing that with a single sensor, uh, you can give information to a clinician in real time that could help them um, manage their patient. So um, when I came to the Bionics Institute, uh, the the Bionics Institute has a, a strong and long history of hearing research. So, um, sort of my technical experience and the hearing knowledge uh, led to um, one of the researchers there, Professor Colette uh, Mackay, uh, wanted to look at tinnitus using an imaging technique that we use there, EFNIS, um, to look at tinnitus. So it sort of was a natural progression into that uh, project for me. Right, so you kind of rolled from brain research in various areas into this this field of tinnitus um what did you um what did you know about tinnitus before you started this work uh i had done a bit of research on hearing and balance uh during my phd uh, at monash university here in australia Uh, so i knew a little bit and looking into it further i realized that there was a lot of work needed in the area. Um, even though there's a lot of research that's already been done, um, but it's still, uh, you know, as you know, 
There's no reliable treatment. There's no clinical test available. So it's really very difficult uh, to develop good treatments for this condition. So there is a huge need for further research. Right. And did you, um, you're absolutely right, of course, uh, about that, about the need. Um, do you have any uh, personal experience of tinnitus? Do you know people who have it or? I personally don't have it, but I do know a lot of people. And since I've been uh, doing this research and our research, as I'll explain later, is um, quite data hungry. So we need data from a lot of people. So I've been talking to a lot of and working with a lot of uh, people who have experienced tinnitus over the past three years. And um, I can understand what a burden it can be. So tell us a bit more um, about the Bionics Institute um, and and what it does. The Bionics Institute uh, was set up uh, over 30 years ago now by Professor Graham Clark, who was the inventor of the Australian uh, cochlear implant. And a cochlear implant, as you may know, is a, is a device that provides a sense of hearing. Uh, to people who are deaf or have severe hearing impairment. So there's a lot of um, background knowledge in hearing at the Institute developed over many years. But uh, Bionics Institute has also um, uh, gone into other fields of research, such as vision and um has looked at conditions such as epilepsy and Parkinson's disease, and these are some of the active projects at the moment. And they were all based on the initial knowledge that they had uh, from the cochlear implant. And this specific project, let's let's zoom in on the the objective measure for tinnitus. Um, maybe you can start by explaining to our listeners why this is so important to have this objective measure? Well, currently, uh, there is no reliable clinical test uh, that a clinician can use to give to help them assess what's happening in the brain uh, with tinnitus. So what clinicians rely on are uh, reports given by the patients. And while these are very important subjective reports of how you're feeling um, because of your tinnitus or what your tinnitus sounds like are very, is very important, uh, but it doesn't, it's limited. It doesn't give clinicians, um, for example, information about which part of the brain is affected. Uh, and lack of an objective measure hinders development of treatments as well because um, without an objective measure it's difficult to know which treatments are actually uh, affecting which parts of the brain and are actually working or not. So having an objective measure is an important step in developing reliable treatments. Yeah so this is something I've I've heard uh, before and I've even heard people use the argument that um, one of the reasons, for instance, that the pharmaceutical industry or healthcare industry is not investing more heavily in developing treatments for tinnitus, even though you would say there is a large need and potential market, uh, is this lack of objective measure because they're worried that, you know, we can develop a treatment, but we won't really be able to assess how well it works 
if we don't have an objective measure. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? Yes, that's exactly right. And also, without an objective uh, measure, it's difficult for uh, people developing treatments or companies developing drugs to get through the regulatory uh, steps of getting a drug approved. So hopefully an objective measure will help with that as well. All right. Yeah, that's an additional element I haven't hadn't even uh, thought of. So yeah, that's useful additional information. Right. So, so we've established the, you know, that that if we can successfully um, develop a measure that that really objectively identifies this person as tinnitus, this person doesn't, it would be a break breakthrough, and it and would uh, help tinnitus research and treatments along. Uh, immensely. Um, can you describe uh, what the measure that you are working on, that you're developing, uh, what that what that looks like, how it works? Sure. So we're using an imaging technique called functional near infrared spectroscopy, or FNES for short. And uh, the way we do the recordings is using a cap that we place on a person's head, uh, sort of a bit like a swimming cap with sensors on them. And the sensors shine light into the head and detect the amount of reflected uh, light. And from that, uh, the amount of blood oxygen, the changes in blood oxygen levels can be quantified. And from that, you can infer brain activity. And the reason is when a part of the brain is uh, becomes active, it needs there's a uh, it needs more oxygen. So there's an increase in blood flow, and therefore there's an increase in um, blood oxygen levels. That's sort of how um, the technology works. So we're recording signals uh, at rest. So when the person's sitting doing nothing, and also. We're recording brain responses uh, to sound and also to visual patterns. And what we're doing is extracting features from these signals in the different conditions and then uh, using machine learning techniques to combine these features. Uh, and what machine learning techniques basically uh, generate mathematical equations uh, with many parameters where you can input your signal features and the output would be, for example, that a person has tinnitus or that a person has severe rather than mild tinnitus. So what you need to do is uh, provide data um, to these uh, mathem mathematical equations or machine learning techniques um, for them to learn what a feature a signal feature from a person with tinnitus would look like and then what you do is uh, input uh, so you do more recordings input signals uh, that you haven't used to train those mathematical equations and then see whether it can identify the signal as coming from someone with tinnitus or not 
or for example, someone with severe or, or mild tinnitus. And if it can identify the new data set, that means it's got good accuracy. Wow, there, there's a lot to unpack there, Mernas. Um, I'm trying to wrap my brain around it. Uh, so, um, so are you starting from a certain theory or model of how tinnitus works in the brain? Or really with like a blank slate and the machine learning program itself sort of develops over time that model? Well, our, our, um, the reason why we're doing all this is based on a lot of research done previously use, uh, by other groups using different imaging techniques. So not FNIs, but uh, techniques such as FMR, functional MRI or PET scans, which are sort of uh, slightly, which are more sophisticated and give you more information uh, about different parts of the brain. And they have shown that um, there is, for example, so they have identified certain parts of the brain that are affected in tinnitus patients. They show differences to people who don't have tinnitus. They've also identified uh, that background neural activity, so your brain activity when you're really not doing anything, it's just sort of background activity, uh, that is sh that shows changes with tinnitus um, and also the other thing that previous research has shown is changes in the uh, in how different parts of the brain interact with each other so we've taken this knowledge from other studies to identify parts of the brain that we want to image so with our system we can place our sensors on the cap on parts of the brain that we know or um, we suspect from other studies that should show changes with tinnitus. Uh, and also we're looking at resting state and responses in the brain because of that knowledge that background resting state or background neural activity is affected in tinnitus. And um, that, that leads to sort of different the different parts of the brain interacting in different ways compared to to controls so with with all that knowledge we've put all that together and identified parts of the brain that we should record activity from and the types of signals that we can use so resting state signals and responses to brains and now what the machine learning um, algorithm the advantage of machine learning algorithms is firstly that they're very good at combining uh, sig different signal features, so different uh, information from different sources. These algorithms are very good at combining these. Uh, the other thing is that most of the research on tinnitus has been done using statistical techniques. And what you get with statistical techniques are group average different differences. So for example, you would say on average, the signal features from the tinnitus group are higher or lower or different to a control group, right? So that gives you group differences. But for a clinical test, what you need is to be able uh, to give your system signals from one person and for the system to tell you with good accuracy that those signals um, appear to be more from the 
similar to the tinnitus group compared to the control group. So you need to feed in as much information as you can for your machine learning algorithms to learn these patterns. And then uh, once you've got data from a single subject, it can tell you with hopefully good accuracy that uh, what, what that data is more similar to a tinnitus patient or, a, or not, or a mild or a severe tinnitus patient. Yeah, let's let's uh, dig in a bit more to the the last thing you said, mild versus severe, because um, I think that's also that's a very important distinction. Also, that's often missed in a lot of um, previous studies. Um, how do you yeah how do you, how do you make that that distinction and and how confident are you that uh, you know you you are able to make that distinction? And then how do you validate that you made the distinction correctly? I assume you have to ask the person some questions about their tinnitus severity or loudness or, or both, and then compare that against their um, their brain activity results. So yeah, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, that, that's exactly right. So to start off with, we need the subjective uh, information from the patients as well. So we have uh, tinnitus questionnaires, for example, the tinnitus handicap inventory or the tinnitus functional index, where um, they ask the, the patient questions about their tinnitus. And at the end, you get a score of whether these responses are likely from someone with, you know, mild, moderate, severe, uh, or even just slight tinnitus. So to start off with, you do need that subjective information to to sort of correlate with your signal features um, to to be able to uh, start developing the, these objective measures. Now, how how we validate this? So as a first step, what we are doing now, our study that was recently published looked at uh, a fairly small group, 25 patients and uh, 18 controls. So it was really a feasibility study just to show that this approach is showing promise with fairly good accuracy on this data set to distinguish tinnitus patients from controls and tinnitus patients at different severity levels. What we need to do now is um, test those algorithms, those models with further data. So that's what we're doing now, collecting more data to increase that sample size and see, uh, check that it all holds up. We're still getting good accuracy. Um, the, and we're also looking at, uh, so subjective rating, we're looking at different, we're looking at uh, the questionnaires that I mentioned, but also just a person's own rating of how loud and how annoying their tinnitus is. And some of the features, the signal features that we've looked at correlate well, for example, with how loud they've rated their tinnitus, but not so well with how annoying they rated it, which is promising because it suggests that we can uh, which separate those two effects with, with the recordings that we're doing. That is very interesting and indeed something I've not heard before that that uh, might be possible. Um, and I, I do think 
a lot of clinicians, when they talk about tinnitus, they when they talk about severity, they're talking about the impact on the person, how distressed the patient is, and not the loudness uh, per se. Um, and it's it's very interesting to hear that you think you might be able to measure purely the loudness signal. That's right. As as I said, um, it's a small data set at this stage, but that's what we're hoping on. That's what we're seeing signs of that we are able to separate these. So we need larger data sets to um, to to see whether that um, still is the case. The other thing, the other study that we aim to do to validate our findings is uh, a study on a subgroup of tinnitus patients who use a cochlear implant. So they would use the cochlear implant for their hearing loss, but in a large group of uh, people who have a cochlear implant and tinnitus, uh, in a in a large percentage, they report that the cochlear implant helps their tinnitus as well. It suppresses the tinnitus. Now, in some people, it, it's not in everyone that it improves the symptoms. Uh, in some people, it actually makes it worse, and in some some people, it has no effect. But that is a very um, valuable uh, group of patients to study because you can change the perception of their tinnitus with by turning the cochlear implant on and off so you would get uh, signals from the same person with their cochlear with their tinnitus modified uh, therefore you're no longer comparing two groups you're not comparing a group of tinnitus patients with a group of controls where the differences that you get might just be because they're different people from different groups. You know, there might be other things going on. Whereas in co a cochlear implant user, you would be getting data from the same person with their tinnitus perception uh, modified. So that's a valuable data set that we hope to get uh, to validate our findings so far. That is very interesting indeed. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that group as being uh, so useful in, in that regard. Can you tell us a bit more about um, the specific areas of the brain that you're looking at? The setup that we have at the moment with our FNES cap, we've got uh, sensors over the auditory parts of the brain, um, the frontal regions, and also the regions at the back of the head, the visual cortex. So uh, the frontal regions we're imaging because they're associated in a lot of studies with the distress experienced by uh, patients, people who have tinnitus. Auditory regions, um, well, because tinnitus in a large number of people starts off as a, um, as a problem or yeah, with the with hearing, which later becomes more central and spreads to different parts of the brain, and then there are the uh, visual regions. And the reasons we're looking at those is because uh, there's a part of the visual cortex that's been shown in many uh, different tinnitus studies that has uh, abnormal background activity. Uh, so the background neural activity that I mentioned earlier. Uh, 
And also, there are a lot of auditory visual pathways in the brain. Therefore, um, when there is, uh, when when there are changes in activity in auditory regions with tinnitus, uh, studies have shown that at, that affects visual um, the visual part of the brain as well. So that's why we're looking at uh, that that part of the brain. So frontal, auditory, and uh, visual regions of the brain are, the, are what we are looking at at the moment. This might be a little sidetrack, but how much is known about those connections between the visual and auditory processing and, and why, how that sort of gets, gets linked? Integrated. Um, with tinnitus, not a lot is known. Um, so yeah, what I, I guess not a lot is known about what happens in those connections and those pathways with tinnitus, but there is a lot of work done on auditory visual integration in, I guess, um, you know, people without tinnitus. So sort of more basic research in that area has been done. So that should help us, um, make sense of of the signals that that we're looking at as well the the other thing i guess with this uh setup that we're using at the moment is we're hoping that with this larger data set that we're collecting and um, the machine learning algorithms that we're doing we'll be able to pick out which channels as we call them which sensors in which parts of the brain are giving us the most information so it might turn out that we don't need all those regions with all those sensors for a clinical application we can have a cap with a reduced number of sensors that is you know easier to set up okay i see and um maybe we can talk also a bit more about this the the resting state activity i thought that was interesting and if i understand correctly resting state refers to um your brain activity when you're not doing anything right you're not responding to anything you're not receiving major stimuli stimuli uh, is that correct that's correct that's correct yes so uh, how, why is it thought that um uh at resting state the the brain of a person with tinnitus uh, looks different uh, and, and and maybe you can talk about both actually also in the non-resting state or the active state whatever the other state is called why is it important to look at both sure uh, so I guess changes in resting state activity is what has been shown uh using other imaging techniques so uh, for example in in auditory regions i guess it would make sense that even when you're not listening to if you have tinnitus even when you're not listening to a sound the brain thinks that you are or is creating activity that makes you make that creates that phantom sound so in the auditory regions, it sort of makes sense. And then um, it's not very clear why so many other parts of the brain get involved as well. Uh, but a lot of studies have shown that they do 
uh, and therefore background activity in other parts of the brain also gets affected uh, in tinnitus. And then why do we need to look at responses? Well, so one hypothesis that we have is, and again, other studies as well have shown this, is that if there's, if, if there's uh, for example, increased background activity in the auditory part of the brain, then when you actually hear a sound, the response of the nerve cells are going to be different to if that background activity was, redu was less. So um, what you start, the activity that you start off with is going to affect how much of a response the brain is, can produce. That's why we're looking at, at um, responses of the brain as well and not just resting state. And again, um, we're hoping that this sort of more sophisticated way of looking at the signals is going to tell us actually which of these conditions is the one is that's giving us the most information. Do we need to always collect all three conditions from uh, patients or is resting state alone going to give us enough information? That, that These are questions that we still need to answer. So regarding the response state, so this is when, when patients are receiving visual and auditory stimuli, right? And you're looking at uh, what's then going on in the brain. So um, are you able to explain how that processing is different or might be different for someone with tinnitus versus someone who doesn't have tinnitus or even someone with mild tinnitus compared with someone with severe tinnitus? How do they process those stimuli differently? Well, what our data has shown uh, so far is for auditory uh, responses, for example, when even when you have groups, so our two groups were matched for age uh, and also for level of hearing. So we do a hearing test before the brain imaging. So we have a, an idea of their hearing levels. And the two groups um, were matched for levels of hearing and also age but when you look at the auditory responses the uh, tinnitus group showed a reduced response compared to the control group and that was the case with even with visual responses um, even though they they all had normal vision or corrected vision with glasses but and they were age matched but the visual responses were smaller in the tinnitus group com compared to the control group. And one uh, hypothesis that we have, or what we think is happening, is again, because of that increased background activity, there's already activity going on. So when you get a stimulus, the response is smaller uh, in the tinnitus group compared to the controls. Right, that it kind of intuitively makes sense, I, I think even for someone who doesn't understand a lot about uh, uh, um, process, brain processing, um, but if you already have like a background process going on and then there's an external stimulus that you have to process on top of that, it just kind of intuitively makes sense that it's then, you know, more difficult. A smaller response. That's right. Yes. Um, 
how much are you aware of or sort of keeping track of um, other efforts to objectively measure tinnitus? I do think there are um, some other groups uh, looking at this. Uh, do do you know? Do you follow those efforts, and are you aware of how they might be the same or different as compared to what you're working on? Obviously, no single imaging technique I think is going to give us all the answers about tinnitus and what's going on in the brain. Um, every imaging technique has its strengths and weaknesses. So there are groups uh, using EEG, so brain electrical activity, uh, to, um, again, do similar things, measure, uh, develop objective measures of tinnitus. Um, there are groups using functional MRI, uh, PET scans, and each of these has its yeah, um, advantages and disadvantages. Uh, what we're using, FNIRS, um, has, an, has, a, has a few sort of key advantages which we think will help translate it to clinical use. And these are that it's non-invasive, it's non-radioactive, it's, um, the systems are fairly portable, uh, so uh, can easily be set up in a clinic, um, low, fairly low cost, um, and also compared to, for, for example, MRIs, uh, MRI, if you've ever had an MRI scan, uh, it's quite noisy. Yes, a, a lot of people with tinnitus are afraid to take an MRI because they're afraid if the noise exposure will increase their tinnitus, yeah. That's right, yes. It's not a very su suitable uh, technique for hearing research and especially tinnitus. So um, in that sense, FNIS, for example, is very quiet. The other thing about FNIS is that because I mentioned we want to validate our measure in a group of cochlear implant users who have tinnitus, um, FNIS can easily be used uh, on patients uh, who have a cochlear implant. Uh, and that's because um, compared to, again, compared to MRI, uh, MRIs aren't very compatible with cochlear implants and also techniques like EEG for example that record brain electrical activity if you do an EEG recording with on someone with a cochlear implant switched on the signals from the cochlear implant are going to interfere with the EEG recordings so they generate what they call artifacts on the signals but because FNIS is using light to image brain activity there is no interference from the cochlear implant on the light signals from FNIS. So it's possible to use them together. So there, all, all these um, advantages we think will help tra once the measure is developed and we're um, confident that it's giving us reliable, accurate uh, 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 measurements, then it'll be possible to translate it to clinical use. How far along are you currently? Um, which which stage uh, are you in and, and what still needs to be done? At the moment, we are collecting more data to um, 
validate our initial findings, make sure they're reproducible. We uh, also managed to get a bit of funding from uh, a program here in Australia called the Medical Device Partnering Program that helped us uh, to work with our collaborators to improve the initial algorithms that we had uh, developed. Um, so at this stage with a larger data set that we're collecting, we'll be able to um, validate those improved algorithms as, as well, make sure that they're working well. Um, the, so that, that's, that's our sort of current stage of work. Maybe we should go also a bit more into the whole machine learning aspect because that's really fascinating and I think it's being used more and more for health research, but it's still relatively unknown, especially to the general public. You know, what are the big advantages of, of doing this and, and how how does one do this well? You, I think one of the things you mentioned is you just need, you know, the more data you put into the into the machine learning program the better it learns and the more sophisticated the model becomes um yeah can you just talk us through that a bit more uh our machine learning work is uh mainly done by our collaborators um they are a group at one of australia's universities deakin university and they're uh, an institute called Institute for Intelligent Systems Research and Innovation, ISRI. Uh, it's headed by a professor, Saeed Nahavandi, who has a great team of experts in machine learning. And we've been fortunate to be able to collaborate with them. Um, so the advantage of using these techniques, as I mentioned, compared to more traditional statistical techniques, is that uh, they'll be able to give us, um, I guess, they, they'll be able to quantify how well we can take data from a single subject and uh, classify that to a tinnitus or non-tinnitus group or tinnitus groups at different severity levels. So to start off with, we've just looked at two severity levels, but hopefully with more data, we can sort of refine that a little bit to more sub subcategories um and the yeah the the reason why um we've looked at machine learning is just is just that currently again it's clinical use um and also that currently there is a lot of um there are a lot of algorithms that it, that are used for different applications, non-health applications that can be easily adapted to to health applications as well. And um, maybe in non-health applications, it's easier to collect very big data sets. So those algorithms can be developed uh, for bigger data sets in other areas, but with the right expertise, they can be adapted. Uh, to health applications such as tinnitus. Uh, all right, there's there's several things there I, I want to follow up on. So um, you mentioned regarding tinnitus severity, I think that you're currently working with. So currently you're able to distinguish 
uh, no tinnitus versus mild versus severe. Is that correct? Uh, yes. So, uh, yes, we've. I guess we asked two questions. Can we separate tinnitus from no tinnitus? And we looked at the accuracy we can get from that. And then we looked at mild versus severe based on a uh, tinnitus handicap inventory rating, which actually gives you more um, categories. It's got slight, uh, mild, moderate and severe, and I think catastrophic as well. Uh, so, so we grouped, because of the low numbers that we had, uh, we grouped slight and mild together and moderate and severe together and just showed that we could uh, fairly well classify these two. All right. And so if I understand correctly, one of your sort of challenges at the moment is just um, testing on, a, you know, uh, larger numbers of of uh, of patients who are willing to participate, and you know, I, I of course there's a lot of logistics there as well because people can't travel from too far, etc. So I can imagine this is a big challenge. Like the machine learning program needs more input, but you know, there's some challenges there <laughs> to get those large sample sizes. That's right. Yes, that is a challenge that we were working through at the moment. And for that, um, uh, I guess the things that we need are more funding and more testing sites. So with more funding, we can set up uh, testing sites in different locations and be able to collect data faster. At the moment, um, we're just testing here in Melbourne at the Bionics Institute, um, but we can, yes, we, there are certainly ways of accelerating uh, the, the data collection phase that needs a bit of funding and resources. Mm. Maybe this is a good time to segue a little bit more into the, I don't know, organizational business aspect uh, of, uh, of the work. Um, can you tell us a bit about, you know, how the how the study is being funded and also are you partnering with any other organizations or, or people in this study? I guess all, almost as difficult as understanding the brain is getting funding for <laughs> research. So that that's a huge challenge. But at the moment, uh, the stu our studies are mainly being funded by the Bionics Institute itself internally. Uh, as I mentioned, we did get some funding from a government program last year, which was great help, the Medical Device Partnering Program. And also at the very start of the project, when uh, Professor Colette Mackay was looking at um, using uh, FNIRS on tinnitus, uh, we did get a small grant from the UK charity Action on Hearing Loss. So, but at the moment, the major funding is coming from the Bionics Institute itself. Um, we're collaborating where we have our collaborators at uh, Deakin University, as I mentioned, uh, and the machine learning team. Uh, they have been very supportive of the project and continue to work with us. Um, the other thing that we need to work on going forward uh, is the hardware uh, side of um, this objective measure. So at the moment, we're using uh, a research system 
that's sort of general purpose. It is used in different, it can be used in any research uh, field that wants to use uh, FNEs for brain imaging. Um, but what we really need for a clinical application is a device that's purpose-built uh, for uh, the sensors that we need. So with a cap that's got the sensors on the locations of the brain that we need and also has our software and algorithms embedded. So that would bring the cost down a lot. It would, uh, and we'd be able to um, sell it hopefully at an affordable price to clinics, to clinicians, so that they, they could use it. So that's another part. And for that, um, we're looking at a number of different parts, but one of them would be to work with uh, a company that already ma makes FNE systems, but just to now purpose build it for this application. I see. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about the future. And then can you outline what you expect or hope the coming, I don't know, three years or so uh, will look like and ideally what will have been accomplished in a few years? So what we're um, hoping to do is uh, firstly expand our current data set uh, to make sure that the findings that we we had in our initial study uh, are re reproducible with a bigger data set. Uh, the other study uh, we'd really like to do is the cochlear implant study I mentioned, where we can uh, measure the same person's brain activity um, with and without tinnitus or with their tinnitus perception changed. Uh, that al will also validate our findings and show that um, we can track uh, different changes in brain activity with tinnitus in the same person. So um, that would then show that with potential treatments, if you test the same person uh, before and after a treatment, then you can monitor changes in brain activity related uh, to tinnitus. And then the third um, sort of aspect that we're also working on is to be able to uh, work closely with um, groups working on treatments, whether drugs or modulate, neuromodulation or other treatments, uh, to work closely with them um, to to monitor their patients' activity before and after um, those treatments, uh, which would, yeah, again, be an important step in the development. It certainly would, yes. And um, have you been able to start any discussions um, with with an, anyone on that or is that really still in the future i'm just interested like are you getting like a good response in terms of oh yes that it, that is something we would be really interested to to buy or yeah we have uh started discussions they're very early <laughs> discussions but there are certainly opportunities to work with uh groups developing different types of treatment um, uh, we are at the moment we're in discussions with uh, two groups it's very early on um, 
but there's certainly been a good response, yes. That's good to hear. That's encouraging. Um, and so the Bionics Institute um, is a non-profit uh, organization, correct? That's right, yes. Yeah, so for me, that's always, you know, that's encouraging um, to hear because you, clearly you have, you have a, a social uh, mission. Um, but I mean, I ultimately, I assume the plan is to commercialize this tinnitus measurement technique. Um, have you thought about, you know, sort of how to do that in such a way that it becomes widely available and benefits as many people as possible? Uh, yes, that that is certainly our goal to get to that stage. Um, so over the past, uh, f I, I think about four years, um, the Bionics Institute has focused heavily on uh, commercializing some of its, its research projects. And there are a number of approaches um, that have been used. So the first, so obviously with our uh, project, currently we're at the stage where we're making sure that everything works. So we've applied for patent protection for our methods. Uh, and then we are open or, to several different uh, methods for commercialization. We're considering different methods. So one is to create a startup um, that would then attract investment and then and allow us to continue the development of the product with the Bionics Institute, but also other partners. And that's been used in some of our other projects. Another would, would be to license the approach to someone that has an interest in the area and then continue the development of the product with a licensee and the Bionics Institute supporting it. Uh, so that, that's another approach. Um, and then also if we partner with FNIR's hardware manufacturers uh, who could help, you know, uh, take the device through regulatory approvals uh, and, you know, things, uh, aspects like marketing, then that also would be another path to commercialization. Now, uh, our uh, management team, our CEO, Mr. Robert Klupax and our head of development, Dr. Errol Harvey, they have a lot of experience uh, in this field. They have been through this path with other projects, um, but they are considering uh, all of them. And also they are happy to talk to other people who are in the commercialization field and have an interest uh, in tinnitus. But um, all of these are options that we can follow. It's good to hear that you're you're actively thinking about those those different options because that's uh, you know even if you would invent the best device ever, uh, <laughs> that that's that's the next crucial step, uh, right? Is getting it out there in in the way that um, it become it it gets taken up widely and people really benefit from it. That's right. That's uh, definitely a big step. Uh, research translation, it's a whole d uh, world in itself. So, um, but hopefully with the expertise that we have at the Institute, it will help move that forward. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can imagine it's not it's not your area of expertise, of course, you're the 
the researcher and brain scientist. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about you know the the tinnitus community, let's say, or um, um, people with tinnitus. We've um, we've seen on the tinnitus tinnitus talk forum some activity discussing the Bionics Institute, and people are you know curious, interested, encouraged, or they want to know more. Um, some people want to be directly involved. Um, um, maybe we can start with that. If people want to be directly involved in this study, uh, who would be eligible and how could they get involved? So just to mention, since uh, last year, end of the end of last year, uh, when we had a paper published on our first study, and there was a bit of bit of media interest. We've had a huge response from um, individuals with tinnitus um, who volunteered to take part in the study, and that's just been really great and promising for us to know that there is support. Um, because, as you mentioned, we need a lot of data in this approach that we're using. We need a lot of data, so it's great to know that we have the support and people willing to put in time and come in and get tested. So that's been really great. Um, at the moment, unfortunately, we only have a testing site in Melbourne. So, uh, and travel is so restricted with COVID at the moment. So even uh, uh, we even get calls from other cities in Australia from people who, who want to come, but it's just difficult for them to, to fly over or drive over. So at the moment, we can only test um, people in Melbourne or very close to Melbourne. Uh, but hopefully with further funding, we can expand our testing sites and then we could uh, accelerate that uh, data collection. Um, and then in other ways, I guess, again, um, we're happy to um, explore commercialization paths or um, hardware development paths. Or so in in that sense, um, we're happy to talk to anyone interested as well. Oh, that's that's good to know. Yeah, you, you're yeah, <laughs> you can put out a call right now because you know a lot of people might be listening. So yes, if someone knows any leads for Mernaz. Please reach out. That would be great. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I think I've sort of gone through most of the questions that I want to ask, but maybe maybe I'll, I'll I'll end off with a with a a big closing question, and then of course you know we're free to talk about it, anything you still want to mention. Um, but but what's ultimately your big hope or aspiration in terms of? you know, the impact you'd like to have on, on people's lives? So what we're mainly hoping is to be able to give clinicians and uh, researchers the ability to somehow track the complex changes that tinnitus triggers in the brain. Um, and that's critical for, for development of new treatments and, and how tinnitus patients are managed. At the moment, the clinical path is really not that clear for someone who has tinnitus. They go from general practitioners to audiologists to ENTs, and really there's nothing concrete that anyone can do or uh, 
anywhere that they can direct them. So um, giving clinicians a tool that gives them more information about the tinnitus and what's happening in the brain, we're hoping will result in improved management, patient management. The other thing um, is that at the moment, tinnitus is mainly an umbrella term. Everyone who has the phantom sound, regardless of the type of sound or other differences, you know, they just say they have tinnitus. So if we can use an objective measure to help uh, identify subtypes of tinnitus, you know, in terms of which part of the brain is affected or the type of sound that they hear or whether it's related to their hearing loss or not. If we, if an objective measure could help identify those subtypes, then again, it would be an important step in um, giving subgroups the right treatment. So identifying a subtype and giving them the treatment that is appropriate. I think that would help uh, management of this condition. Mm, it's interesting that you bring up subtypes because I uh, just before we started, I, I it occurred to me I should probably also ask about subtypes and then I, I forgot, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it's an interesting discussion because I think the tinnitus research community for the past few years has sort of labored over this idea where of subtypes where some researchers are convinced it's an important concept, others are not so convinced. Um, but uh, the, I guess the problem is no one has ever been able to very conclusively identify what exactly are these subtypes then and how are they defined. Um, is, is that something that you hope <clears throat> might come out of your research as well? Yeah, I'm, yes, <laughs> I'm, I certainly hope um, that our research helps with that um, aspect of tinnitus, identifying subtypes. Now, as I mentioned, our imaging technique, like other imaging techniques, is not going to answer all the questions. For example, FNEs, we know uh, images sort of... Uh, it can't image deep parts of the brain. It images the cortex and superficial parts of the brain. That's why we've identified specific brain regions that FNEs can image. Um, but there might be sub subtypes of tinnitus where uh, the abnormal activity is deeper in the brain and we wouldn't access it with FNEs. But again, even if there are certain groups that we can identify, then that would help um, take the that sort of patient assessment one step further and say, well, it doesn't look like it's this, you know, this type or that type, but maybe you need you now need to have. Hopefully, by then there'll be other clinical tests available as well, and they'll say, so now maybe you need to have another clinical test to, to identify this. Or our method, so our method would help rule out um, a subtype and direct them to the next step. I think that would, um, that would help this condition a lot. Yes, definitely. Um, and I'm very interested to see 
what what's going to happen with your research, and I know many uh, in the tinnitus community are uh, will be following uh, you guys. Um, is there is there anything, Mernas, that we that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I think we've covered everything. Um, I guess just to mention that uh, this is definitely multidisciplinary research. So um, my colleague and our research director at the Institute, James Fallon, uh, he also has an engineering and neuroscience background and has a lot of knowledge in the hearing space. And so he that sort of his contribution is very important. We have uh, the machine learning, the more uh, sort of engineering type aspects. We are going to have hardware development and we have our clinicians, uh, audiologists and uh, ENT consultants that, that we sort of keep in contact with just to make sure um, we're on the right clinical track. Um, so it's definitely multidisciplinary. There are a lot of people involved. Uh, we need a lot of expertise from different sides. There's the commercialization. Um, but I think we have a good team uh, and hopefully with everyone's efforts, we can move this forward. Certainly, let's hope so. Yeah, and um, I agree that multidisciplinary aspect is so important. Um, I think it's always been one of the challenges in tinnitus research that is that tinnitus never really neatly fit into one discipline or another. It was always cross-cutting. Maybe that's one of the reasons it has been under-researched. I don't know. But it's great to see you guys, you know, pu pulling together such a multidisciplinary team. So, Mernaz, I want to thank you so much for your time uh, and for the work that you do. And um, we, like I said, we will be, we'll be uh, following your work and uh, well, hope to stay in touch. Thank you very much. I hope to stay in touch too. And thank you very much for doing this interview, this opportunity. It's great to be in touch with um, this community. I think you have uh, some great knowledge already that's also going to help us. Um, so I also wish you the best as well.